This is episode 271 of That Shakespeare Life. Just like the work of William Shakespeare, That Shakespeare Life is powered by our patrons. When you support the show as a patron, you can contribute directly to programming, get sneak peeks of upcoming shows, submit questions to be asked during the interviews, and access over 150 additional episodes of our show not available on public listening platforms. Along with all these extras, there's also an entire library of history activity kits, printable worksheets, artwork, and more, all of which coordinate with our show and with Shakespeare's plays. Unlock all the extra Shakespeare history right now when you join us as a patron at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. Hi, I'm Chris Lautaris, the author of Shakespeare's book about the Shakespeare first folio. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's that Shakespeare life with my friend Cassidy Cash. The Roanoke were very welcoming when the English first arrived, and uh, and so they they welcomed them, they traded with them, and actually, believe it or not, invited the English to build right next to their village here on Roanoke Island. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. In 1584, Spain dominated the coast of Central and South America, the Caribbean, and modern-day Florida. England, under the rule of Elizabeth I, sought to disrupt and overthrow this control by establishing colonies in the New World. Not only would these colonies help provide a buffer against Spain's control, but it also helped set up a home base for England's privateering, which allowed English ships to attack Spanish ships, stealing treasure and gaining control of Spanish trade routes in the region. One of England's most famous privateers, Sir Walter Raleigh, with the blessing of Queen Elizabeth, sent a reconnaissance expedition to the New World in April of 1584. They arrived in present-day North Carolina in July of 1584 and would go on to establish the first English colony in the United States, Roanoke Colony, in 1587. At this site today, Fort Raleigh, named after Sir Walter Raleigh, works hard to investigate and preserve the history of Roanoke Colony, and we're delighted to have National Park Ranger Josh Nelson join us today today, directly from Roanoke Island, to tell us about the Elizabethan history of Raleigh, North Carolina. Josh is taking a minute out of his workday as a park ranger to meet with us today, so you're going to be able to hear some of the birds and the wildlife directly behind him as he shares this history with us today. Josh Nelson is a park ranger with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, currently working as a park ranger with Fort Riley on Roanoke Island in North Carolina, where visitors can learn more about the lost colony of Roanoke. Find out more about Josh and links to information on how you can visit Fort Riley in the show notes for today's episode. Hello, Josh. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life. Hey, great. Thank you for having me. What potential colony sites did they discover when they first arrived here? Yeah, you know, the English, they're, they're arriving here on Roanoke Island back in, in 1584 is their first scouting party. And, and their job, it's just two small ships. And basically their, their job is to try to try to learn if this is a good place to settle. And they, they just spent a few weeks 
in this area. They did find that in their view, there was a really good location on Roanoke. It's it's situated behind what we call the Outer Banks, which is a, a strip of sandbars that are just, just a little bit to our east, about two miles to our east. And so that protected this island, Roanoke, from weather to a certain extent, from the bad storms that would hit the, come out from the ocean. But also it would protect them from the eyes of the Spanish, because at the time the, the English were um, primary rivals of the Spanish. And so they were trying to set up a colony and gain strength before the Spanish found out where they were. And so Roanoke was good for that reason. And it was good for another reason, too. And that was simply the, the native tribe that lived here. The Roanoke were very welcoming when the English first arrived. And, uh, and so they, they welcomed them. They traded with them. And actually, believe it or not, invited the English to build right next to their village here on Roanoke Island. Was Roanoke originally set up as a military colony? And how is that different from a colony like Jamestown, for example? Yeah, you know, this this colony was, well, I should really back up and say there were two colony attempts on Roanoke Island. And the first one in 1585 is uh, primarily a military group. That was 600 men that initially came over here to what the English were calling as the, the New World. And they didn't leave all 600 here in their, their settlement. They left just over 100. But most of those were soldiers. What's really neat, though, and, and one thing that ties directly into the, the park here at Fort Raleigh is the workshop that we've discovered. It was a place where a scientist named Thomas Harriet and a metallurgist named Joaquin Gons was working. Because in addition to their soldiers, the English were really interested in learning about this new new place. Um, they, they had no idea what was here, what goods they could find. They were interested in finding what sorts of materials they could export back home to England. And of course, gold and silver will come to mind quickly. But they, they were also interested in, in the, the lumber and the um, other plants that might be here, medicines that might be here. And, and so they were, were set up pretty well to actually learn about those things. I think that um, what we see between the Roanoke voyages here, the Lost Colony, and the later Jamestown settlement about 20 years later is, is almost a continuation because what, even though the Roanoke voyages ended up failing, what they were able to learn here on the island helped them a little bit later down down the road 20 years when they build Jamestown. And so Jamestown was was different. Uh, there were certainly some soldiers included within that expedition. Initially, they were all men that first landed in Jamestown. But I think one of the biggest differences is probably the shift towards a commercial venture is greater by the time you reach Jamestown than it was in the very beginning here at Roanoke, where it was more of a, a noblemen and and indirectly uh, monarchy sponsored voyage. So when they arrived at Roanoke, you mentioned that they were making contact with the natives and you said that they were working with the Roanoke that were there. Were they also working with the Carolinian Algonquin? And what was the relationship like with the natives? You touched on this earlier, but I just wonder if there's more to that story. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. This the, the Carolina Algonquian, it's, it's a, think of it as a family, a uh, language family. And, and so Algonquian is the language that these, these groups are speaking. And so the Roanoke that I've mentioned previously is one group within this, this broader umbrella of Carolina Algonquian speaking tribes. So the English interact with the Roanoke. They interact with the, the Croatoan people who lived about 50 miles south of this island. They interact with a, a group called the Wapimiok. 
who were north of here. And the Choanoke were also another group that they, they did interact with. And those are the primary ones that they meet. And for the most part, this isn't universal, but for the most part, the interactions were, were really positive in the very beginning. Because if you can maybe step back and think about this from the perspective of the Algonquian, these newcomers, they've seen European ships sail past the shores. They've seen shipwrecks, in fact, from, from the Spanish vessels. Uh, that would have been sailing through this this area or just off the coast for the last, by that point, it would have been oh, almost 100 years, actually. So this wasn't completely new, but this is the first time that they've had a prolonged contact. And, and they're trying to understand these newcomers as much as the English are trying to understand this area. And so they, they are all welcoming. They're uh, looking to trade with the English to, to gain some of the, the tools and other items that the English had with them. Unfortunately, though, that doesn't last. And one really big reason for that is, is the introduction of illnesses that the English unintentionally are spreading through native populations. And we, we have one little excerpt from a guy, the Thomas Harriet, the, the man I mentioned before, who was a mathematician, a scientist on the, the voyage. And he writes about how when, when the English visit villages, after they visit, scores of, of the native people will become sick and, and die. And and so this is seen by the English, but they don't understand what's happening. And it's seen by the natives, and they don't understand what's happening. But it starts to cause them to distrust the English. And so eventually, the relationship between the Roanoke tribe specifically and the English does fall apart. It, it does uh, break out into war within 11 months of the English arriving. What was the incentive for Riley specifically to undertake this venture in the first place? You mentioned that he was indirectly sponsored by the monarchy. So I wonder, does that mean he was commanded to go on this voyage by the queen? Was he acting on her orders? Or what does he need to seek out investors for this journey instead of being completely funded by the crown? What's the motivating situation there that sends him across the ocean? Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, back back at the time, England is considered the leader of the Protestant countries in Europe. And Spain is the leader of the Catholic countries in Europe. So being those, those, that, in that dynamic, there, there's no real friendship between those two countries, you could say. And, and actually, in, in the early parts of the Roanoke voyages, 1584, 1585, we're just a couple of years away from outright war breaking out between King Philip of Spain and Queen Elizabeth of, of England. So that's the backdrop. Spain has conquered a lot of land in Central and South America, and they've extracted a lot of resources from that. And so they're, they're really increasing their power and their wealth. And England wants to try to accomplish that themselves. They also, they want to try to disrupt the, the supply of resources that Spain is sending back, back to Europe. And Roanoke Island is situated very, very close to the, the Gulf Stream this major ocean current, which exists today and existed back then, right? And so the, the Spanish are using that to, to take their treasure fleets from Central America back to Europe. And this, the English hope to be able to privateer or to attack that shipping route and, and be able to take some of those resources and hurt their, their enemy at the time. So that's why Queen Elizabeth is interested in this happening. She doesn't directly sponsor it, although she does send one of her own private ships along in the voyage because she wants this to be successful. This will really disrupt her, her rival's power and, and supply, supply of resources. So she ends up granting a charter to Sir Walter Raleigh, which gives him the monopoly on any English 
settlements in North America and the exports from them. And it's probably because of the close relationship between Sir Walter Raleigh and, and Queen Elizabeth that that's um, granted. Plausible deniability on Elizabeth's part. She wants them to go, but she wants to be able to say she had nothing to do with it as well. That could be that could be right. Yes. Was the Roanoke colony successful? I think you mentioned earlier that it failed. Tell us about what that failure looked like and why did it fail? Yeah, that, that's a tough question because when, when we talk about just the from the English perspective, does this colony succeed? And, and the answer really is no, because there's no permanent settlement on Roanoke Island. There's no permanent settlement in this area from these voyages. And, and so it, it becomes a loss in that way for England. But I think that the amount of information that was learned from these voyages you could make an argument that this really sets England up for success in the future. Now, it was a rough and long path for them to travel. Uh, it's not that that the next English settlement comes around in, in Jamestown. And actually, the same year, there was also an English settlement attempt in Maine, present-day Maine, called Popham, uh, which failed as well. So it wasn't easy, but but they did learn things. And one example would be copper, how much the, the native tribes, the Algonquian tribes, prized copper. It was seen as as a status symbol for them. And they had copper prior to meeting the English. It would have been traded from tribes farther inland. But this was a a readily available source for these people. And so um, the English know that. They learn that at Roanoke. And so they bring a lot of copper with them when they reach Jamestown. That was in large part what they were trading with the, the tribes in that area for their food, for their survival in the first year to two years that they were over there. So I think in some ways you could say that they did gain a lot from these voyages and and it helped them with their efforts later on. Now, we know that the governor of Roanoke, John White, had to leave the colony. Why did he end up having to leave? And then what did he find when he returned in 1590? Yeah, th- this is the part of the story that that really we know some about it, but there are so many question marks that that come up. We There's a lot of holes left within his writings that Certainly, we would love to be able to fill in. John White did travel here multiple times, and he was with the military colony. He then gets promoted. He's the governor of the what we call the Lost Colony. So this is the civilian group that, that arrives on Roanoke in 1587. And he only spends a, a short few weeks with them. We think that a lot of that has to do with the, the need for more supplies and, and people. And so he was... I don't know if elected is the right word, but he was asked by the entire colony to be the one to go back home. And perhaps that's because they think he might have the most influence with Sir Walter Raleigh and the other investors who would be able to send more supplies and people. So he's here for, for, I think it's just under five weeks. And when he sails, he ends up being the last European to have contact with this colony. He returns. It's later than he expected. He hoped to come back within within a year. The pattern of the voyages would be that they would leave England in the spring, arrive here by mid to late summer, and then leave before hurricane season really comes in in, in late summer to, to early fall. And so he left at that time, but he didn't come back the next spring. He didn't come back the next spring after that. It ended up being three years before he finally makes it back to Roanoke Island. And when he gets here, he finds very little. He reaches the island. He discovers CRO has been carved on a tree. 
He thinks it's a clue where his colony has, has ended up. He, he had actually arranged ahead of time with them to carve where they were going. And he also said that he, he arranged with them to carve a cross if they had been attacked or something had gone wrong. So there's no cross. He walks to the settlement location. He said that it had been enclosed by a wooden wall, a palisade wall. He said on the gatepost, he found the word Croatoan carved there. But he walks inside. He says the houses are taken down. And when I hear that to me and to a lot of people, that means that these homes were, were disassembled and, and moved to a new location. And, and so that's what he finds. Now, he, he knows Croatoan is the name of an island south of here. And he's trying to reach that island. But the ship that he had been able to travel here on was a privateering ship. Their main mission was not to find this colony. And so when a storm hits that ship, nearly sinks it, forces it well away from this area out into the Atlantic Ocean, the captain doesn't return. And John White is, is a helpless passenger on board. And so he ends up spending less than one day searching for his colony on, on Roanoke Island. And that's really what leads to the, this whole idea of it, of it being a, quote, lost colony, because Europeans don't have further contact. And to this day, we're still, it's unclear, let's put it that way, on, on where they end up, ultimately, and what happens to them as well. Tell us about these ships. You mentioned that there were only two ships in the 1584 voyage, and then that John's John White's ship he's traveling on is a privateering ship. And I wonder if you can tell us what kind of ships that they were traveling on. I know there's a specific one that I was wondering about. I think it's called a panache, which I just, I don't recognize that word. And I was hoping you could explain for us what we should expect to see if we had been there to watch the ships traveling to Roanoke. Sure. Yeah, definitely. I, I think that first off for, for your listeners, think about a small vessel. If, if anybody has ever been on a school bus, that's the average length of a lot of these vessels that were coming over here, give or take, but approximately that length. And so it, we're not talking a large vessel for any of these voyages. Um, certainly there were some that were larger than others. The one that you mentioned specifically pronounced pinnace. Pinnace, okay. A little bit later on, it's it's more of an, uh, a boat, like a ship's boat that you'll see. So if you just Google pinnace, you'll probably find a lot of things that you would think there's no way that came across the ocean and you'd be right. That's exactly what I did. I looked it up and I went, there's no way these people started these colonies in these tiny little rowboats almost. I mean, they're very small. Very small. And and so the pinnaces were one of the smallest, actually really the, the smallest vessel that did travel across the Atlantic to get here, but it did have it was a little bit more substantial than what you you see later on identified as a pinnace, like in the later 1700s and early 1800s. This was a, a small vessel. I think it was about 20 tons. So that's the the amount of cargo that it would basically be able to hold. You're you're talking a crew of of 10 or 12, maybe. I mean, it's it's little, and quite frankly, it's not a vessel that I would have any interest in going across the ocean in. But these these were typically used as uh, tenders to the fleet. So they would be vessels that could go between the larger ships. They would be vessels that the English really, really liked to use to explore coastal waters. So very beneficial for their, their time here. It's worth noting the island that I'm sitting on here is surrounded by sound water. So it's this mixture of, of salt and fresh water and it connects to the Atlantic Ocean through a series of inlets. But the water is very shallow. We're talking six feet or eight feet deep on average. 
And so the larger English ships could not even come in to Roanoke Island. And so the pinnaces were incredibly valuable because they were shallow draft and they could come up and, and actually offload supplies right here at Roanoke for, for the English. That makes it make so much more sense because the idea of taking that ship from England across the Atlantic Ocean sounds terrifying to me with the the waves. You know, they've got to be huge in the middle of the ocean. But then they they totally had their eyes on the end game of we've got to be useful once we get where we're going. And when you understand more about the ship, then that makes more sense why this was what they were traveling on. Yeah, definitely. We know that the colonists at Roanoke vanished, as you mentioned, but are there artifacts there that survived to testify to the fact that there were people there? And do we know the exact site where the colony was established? Mm, fantastic question. So, yes, there are things that, that remain as far as artifacts discovered in the ground. The exact location of the settlement is a little bit tricky. We, we have not comprehensively discovered all pieces of the settlement, no. Um, that's even for Roanoke Island. So beyond the question of where these people ended up, what happened to them, where did they travel to after leaving Roanoke Island? Because it, it seems fairly clear that they did leave. There's a lot of questions left. And so archaeologists return to Ro- to Fort Raleigh here on Roanoke Island pretty pretty regularly. At this point, we feel very comfortable that we've discovered a site where the English built a small earthen fortification. We're unclear whether it's the entire, like, fort in Virginia that they describe in their writing, or if it's just a small defensive structure built in in conjunction with something larger. We do know that just outside of that small earthen fort, that there was a workshop site. And and this is where Thomas Harriet is, is working. By the way, it's worth noting that Thomas Harriet wrote an account of his his trip here, and it's still in print. It's called A Brief and True Report of the Newfoundland of Virginia. And it's a fascinating account of his time. He's also just a fascinating man that, that went on to other great exploits. So the workshop that he's in, uh, along with Joaquin Gonza Metallurgist, has been discovered. It's, it was about 20 feet by 28 feet. S- simple structure, wooden posts with a thatched roof, probably open air for at least two or three of the walls just to, to create a lot of airflow because they would have had a hot furnace burning inside where the smelting would have been taking place as they they basically tried to find the metals they were hoping to find. We also know that that structure was connected by these wooden palisade walls, light walls in very small area, but that connected to a watchtower that they had on site. Outside of that, some evidence of charcoal production, which makes sense because you want to feed the charcoal into your furnace, and also small-scale brick production has been discovered. So we've got a small work site. We have not found the site of their houses where they lived. And that's an ongoing mystery. So for people that are interested in Shakespeare history and learning more about the colonists and the the goings on, if you will, of the late 1500s and early 1600s happening there in and around Fort Raleigh, what are some things that they should be sure and see if they come and visit Fort Raleigh? Yeah, the site here has a small museum inside the visitor center, and that's where you're going to be able to find some of the artifacts discovered here on site, all originals that, that we have on display. And a couple of the ones that, that stand out to me would be the, the a copper necklace discovered, oh, 2008, 2009 in that window. And uh, it would have been one of the trade items that the English were bringing over with them. It's this 13-piece necklace made out of copper that would have been traded to the, the native tribes in this area. There's uh, There's been a few tools discovered. And then also small items like little shards of glass or or crucible pottery 
that gives us more of the story of the workshop and the type of work that these these men were, were conducting in that area. So those things are all here to, to see on site. You can take a short walk out to the area that part of that settlement's been found in. And because this is an archaeological site, and because a lot of the evidence of, of this story is underground, I think it's it's a great opportunity to to find one of the staff here at the park to be able to, to learn a little bit more about this uh, this area and this story. We will place links to Fort Raleigh in the show notes for today's episode. And we do encourage you to visit and see the history that you can literally put your eyes on there, um, the physical history from Shakespeare's lifetime. So it's a great opportunity to get to see some of that. Now, I know we would love to learn more about the colony of Roanoke, as well as the colonists, Jamestown, and these ships that you're telling us about. So what are some of your favorite books or resources you can recommend we use to learn more? Sure. Yeah. So the park website, which is www.nps.gov forward slash F-O-R-A. We've really worked to be able to put a lot of information up on that website. And, and so if you did want to learn more about the, the ships, the we don't have exact plans for each of the ships that came over here, but we have all of their names and approximate um, size and tonnage and things like that. So it's, you can certainly learn more there, learn more about the different voyages that came over here, about the Algonquian tribes that were in this area. So that's one resource. To me, I I find it fascinating to read the words directly from the people who were here. And so as long as you're you're willing to to take a stab of of reading English of the day, which is a little challenging at first perhaps, but the the brief and true report of the Newfoundland in Virginia written by Thomas Harriet is a really interesting window I guess into this area at that time. There are also several books that have been fairly recently published that would be for the person that's just I guess becoming introduced to this story and uh, maybe not that that deep dive. And and one that came out a few years back that's fairly popular is called The Secret Token by Andrew Lawler. There's a couple of books written by Karen Kupperman and James Horn, who are both um, really, I would say, experts on on this topic. So a lot of, lot of good reading that, that's out there related to the Lost Colony of Roanoke. Those are excellent resources. Thank you so much for suggesting them. We will place direct links to these in the show notes for today's episode. So you can go right to where you need to be to find these and check out the books and definitely check out the website. We've had a look at the website of the ships, the page there of the, you've got the master and the galleon. There's a shallop and a tilt boat, all kinds of fun things to learn about there for that history. So definitely check out the show notes to find more on that. Now, Josh, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible. So your choice would be in addition to those. You know, the, the immediate thing that comes to mind, and this is maybe a very park ranger answer, but a guide to edible plants of that area. That that's the that's the first thing that pops into my mind because after a day and a half of not eating, I'm not gonna be interested in a book. So I, I I'll give you this answer. Either that book or if I can't get that one, survival guide, and if I can't get that one, a book that I can read in one day. There you go. I think that is a very practical answer and fitting for a park guide, absolutely. So what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? Yeah, you know, I think for the the park here, and, and it's a fascinating place because we learn so much all the time. 
I would say in the last 10 years, we've discovered almost as much about this story as we knew for the 430 years before that or 420 years before that. To give a quick example is, is that workshop that I mentioned. We've known for over 30 years that those two men were working on that location, that that type of work was happening, but we couldn't tell you until early last year, so about a year ago, what the buildings actually looked like from recent archaeological digs. And there's already plans in the works right now for more archaeological digs in, in other areas of the park as they, the archaeologists continue to try to search for the housing location. Beyond that, there's areas outside of this national park where archaeologists are working, trying to learn more about what might have happened to the colony. And so it's always exciting to, to keep track of what's happening from the digs down at Hatteras Island or the digs from a site 50 miles west of here called Site X and Site Y. To me, that's, that's one of the great things about this story and about working here at Fort Raleigh. Those are fascinating things. I know we'll be looking forward to seeing what comes from those archaeological digs. And we thank you so much, Josh, for being here today and taking us through the history of Fort Riley and helping us connect Shakespeare's life with some of the things that were happening here in North America. This was a really fun conversation, and I appreciate you sharing it with us. Oh, you are welcome. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Thank you. If you like the show today, be sure to let us know about it. Drop us a rating and a review on the platform you're listening from today. Every rating and review you leave us helps other Shakespeare historians find our show. And as you know, we love to connect with other Shakespeareans. If you would like to see some visual history that coordinates with our show, some of the images of the ships we talked about, as well as maps and artifacts about Roanoke colonies and links to the direct works of Thomas Harriet, where you can see his words about what it was like to be there in Roanoke Colony. You can find all of this extra history that coordinates with our conversation today in the show notes. The show notes are at CassidyCash.com slash episode 271. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP 271. If you'd like to go even deeper into the history of the life and background of William Shakespeare, then consider becoming a patron of That Shakespeare Life. In addition to over 150 extra episodes of our show, patrons get access to insider Shakespeare history material through our Experience Shakespeare Activity Kits. Each kit features a game, recipe, or craft straight from the life of William Shakespeare that you can try out for yourself at home. We include step-by-step instructions, a printable supply list, a video tutorial, and a bonus history guide for each of these activities. There's also bonus episodes, sneak peeks at upcoming shows, and even educator resources with things like worksheets and lesson plans that make it easy to take our show into your home or classroom. Join us inside that Shakespeare Life Patreon club where you can cook, play, and create your way through the life of William Shakespeare. Find out more and sign up today at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare Life. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare Life. That Shakespeare Life is researched and produced by me, Cassidy Cash. Our audio engineer is Gary Mayholm. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.